Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pair of public health experts answer some urgent questions about how to stay safe. I think most public health professionals understood that we were by no means done with the, the pandemic, or more precisely, the pandemic was not done with us. A pediatric infectious disease specialist explains how parents can protect children under 12 as the school year begins. We know that a lot more children are getting infected and we are seeing three times more of new child COVID cases this time of the year compared to the same period last year. And an endocrinologist tells why people diagnosed with type 2 diabetes as children have a greater risk of complications than adults. They seem to lose the ability to secrete insulin at a much faster rate than we see in adults who develop type 2 diabetes. All that plus a visit from The Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a pediatric infectious disease expert explains what parents need to consider in order to send their children back to school safely. Then, an endocrinologist goes over a landmark study about type 2 diabetes that included patients from Syracuse. But first, two public health experts answer some urgent questions about the coronavirus Delta variant surge. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is now recommending that people wear face masks throughout most of New York State, and in Onondaga County, 100 or more cases of COVID-19 are being diagnosed each day. Here with me to help us understand that we're still in the midst of a pandemic are Talisa Stewart, who's a Doctor of Public Health and an Associate Professor in Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, and Christopher Morley, Professor and Chair of that department. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Stewart and Dr. Morley. Nice to be back. Thank you. Now, I note for our listeners that you both study disease trends and public health. You're, you're not medical doctors. But a few months ago, it seemed like we were done with COVID, and then the numbers are now going back up again. So what happened? Well, I think most uh, public health professionals understood that we were by no means done with the, the pandemic, or more precisely, the pandemic was not done with us. Um, the the uh, the emergence of variants has always been predicted. It's always been baked into the cake, and our ability to stay ahead of variants was always predicated on our ability to to get people vaccinated. The less a virus has the opportunity to uh, spread to replicate, uh, the less it evolves. The more it replicates, the more it has opportunity to evolve. And vaccination cuts off the opportunity to replicate. So as long as we have a substantial portion of the population unvaccinated, it will continue to evolve. So nobody uh, in the public health realm, I think, thought this was done. And most of us thought we were, we were going to see other surges. And to be perfectly blunt, as, until we have everybody vaccinated, we'll see surges in the future. So I think probably most of our listeners have heard of the Delta variant. But why do you think so many people seem unaware of this surge, the Delta surge? Dr. Stewart? Yeah, I think, you know, we've gotten to a point where our society is just, we're tired, we're exhausted, and, and we have just tuned this out. Uh, and as things are emerging and escalating, I think we've just gotten a bit desensitized to the situation around us. Uh, and so there is messages being put out about the Delta variant and the increase of infections in our area. But I, I think we're focusing on other things like masking and vaccination. And so this is just kind of lower on our list of things to pay attention to. Well, I want to ask you about which numbers are important to track. So what does the number of new cases indicate? So the number of new cases, uh, well, I think that speaks for itself. It tells us how many people are getting sick, but we trait, we specifically track the number of new cases per day. That's uh, basically uh, an approximation of incidence or how many, how many new cases are emerging in the population. Now, tra tracking cases is, is involves tracking the number of people who test positive, and it's possible asymptomatic people are walking around with, with the COVID-19 uh, virus that 
who are untested. So it's not precisely exactly the same thing as incidents, but it's close enough. So we track this because we, we try to make sure that we're watching the rate at which new cases are emerging. The number of cases obviously can be distressing if it's high, but we also watch if it's persistent as opposed to a single cluster breaking out. If we're turning out the same or more numbers every day, we know we've got a, uh, a, more, um, a more chronic and long-term problem than if we have one uh, quick burst of, of cases. And what we're watching closely is how that tracks alongside the hospitalization rate or how many people are in the hospital at any given time. Because uh, one thing that's been apparent with, with vaccination is that early on in, when, when vaccines became available, we vaccinated our oldest and most at-risk populations, uh, subpopulations first. And so right now, hospitalizations are increasing at slightly less uh, uh, of a pace than, than cases, but hospitalizations are going up as well. I do wanna make that clear. That's an argument both for the severity of what we're seeing, that hospitalizations are increasing, but also for the effectiveness of the vaccinations that we've, uh, we've, we've gotten into people because those are actually uh, doing a little, doing the work to, to keep some of the, uh, the, the population at least out of the hospital. Now, only a small percent of people who are infected actually wind up dying from COVID, but is the death rate an important number to track as well? Of course, deaths matter, and deaths matter uh, at, at a very fundamental, uh, as a f very fundamental human concern. But the bottom line is what will really be disruptive is uh, the number of hospitalizations, because that's what will impact the, the healthcare system and the overall spread, because the more the virus is spreading to people who might not die, the more they are then passing it on to people who may be hospitalized, uh, permanently uh, affected with, with long-term um, sequela or with death. So um, the death rate matters in terms of our, our, uh, our moral imperative to address the situation, but in terms of managing the epidemic, it actually is, is one of the things we, we tend to not focus on primarily because we've got a lot of precursors, how many people are getting sick, how many people are entering the hospital that uh, lead up to that death rate that we have to manage um, before people are dying. Now, when the pandemic began at the very beginning, public health experts talked about the R naught. Can you remind us what that is and then explain uh, how it compares from the original coronavirus to the Delta variant? Absolutely. So R is the reproductive rate. It's how quickly a virus uh, reproduces. Uh, we've actually talked about it in this show, but very quickly, the R naught or R zero is the the rate at which we estimate a pathogen replicates when it's unfettered by uh, interventions, when it's not hitting a wall of vaccinated people, when it's not hitting masks, when people aren't distancing. What does it look like? How quickly does the does does a pathogen replicate through a population? when people are doing nothing to stop it, right? If, if the population is naive, has no immunity, and just, just lets it roll. The thing we actually watch closely on, 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 a, on a weekly basis is the RT, or the reproductive rate at a given time. And that's how the virus is moving uh, in response to how people are behaving, the level of immunity in the community, and so forth. And we circulate around the number, we circle the number one, because if, if we're at a one, an RT of one, that means that every that every case is infecting on average one other person. That's when you have a basically flat curve. A flat curve is fine, but if you've got 500 cases a day, you don't want 500 new cases every day. So you want the R to be below one. That's when you know an epidemic is turning around for the time being. An R of, of, of more than one means that every every case is infecting more than one person. So how the R not uh, or the, the R not for this Delta variant compares previously is we assume that uh, there are very very different estimates, but everybody uh, was in within a range of somewhere between um, two and three for an R value an R not value for the original uh, the original uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus that impacted and caused COVID-19. At this point, we we see early estimates of the Delta variant having an R value, an unfettered uh, reproductive rate of somewhere between five and eight, basically like chickenpox. It's that it's that contagious, so it's really upped its game. 
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with two experts from Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, Dr. Chris Morley and Dr. Talisa Stewart. Now, one big difference between August 2021 and August 2020 is the availability of the vaccine, at least for adults. So how much of a difference do you think the vaccine has made, Dr. Stewart? You know, when we look at the number of infections uh, before the vaccine, we used to see big spikes in infections and then come down. Uh, but now with the vaccine out there, we're starting to see uh, a pretty sharp increase, um, but then things start to look like they're flattening out. We saw that in the kind of the April and May, and we're, we're hoping that this new uh, spike in infections now will have a similar trend, but um, more, to, more to come, right, as we, we weather this storm together. Can you help us understand, though, if we have this vaccine that is so powerful, why are we seeing a surge? One thing to remember is that uh, the vaccine is not 100% uh, effective, right? So there's nothing out there that would 100% prevent infection. So we know that the at least the mRNA vaccines are have a really strong uh, protection against the Delta variant. And so research that came out in July uh, from the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at um, how the vaccines performed with the Delta variant. And it shows that 88% um, coverage with the vaccine. So that's against the sniffles, that's against any type of symptom. Um, you know, for some people who get, uh, who are vaccinated and they do get uh, Delta, they might get nothing. They might get uh, some sniffles and cough, or they might feel more sick and have to stay at home. Um, and so there's a severity range here that comes into play. Um, but that's, we know that that vaccine works. We can see it uh, and it is providing uh, a fair amount of protection. It sounds like what you're saying is even if you're vaccinated, this is not the time during the Delta surge to go back to life before the pandemic. Masking, distancing, are those things you're still recommending? Absolutely. I think, you know, you kind of have two buckets going on. There's the bucket of for yourself, right? How do you keep yourself safe, right? And how do you keep yourself from getting Delta or spreading Delta? Uh, and to do that, that is masking, that is washing your hands. Uh, and so there's making sure you have a vaccine. But for, you know, the other bucket, that is how do you protect the loved ones around you? And so for many of many of our families, um, there is kind of that mix of people in your household. So you have half the people vaccinated. You have some people who are not vaccinated. And how do you weigh the how do you weigh your own personal lifestyle against protecting your family? So I think, you know, in that instance, um, you can as a vaccinated person, you can get Delta, you can spread it. And so uh, making sure that you take all those precautionary measures that you were doing uh, before the vaccine, you wanna do them now to protect the people who are not uh, vaccinated. How can we tell when the pandemic is over? Dr. Morley? Well, we have, um, we have a number of indicators, but you have to watch them together. What I would say, uh, one of them is when you see our uh, values or reproduction rates dip below one, that's a, that's the way we look, but uh, the, the general public can look on the various dashboards uh, you know, that, that are out there. And if the curve is going down and it's low and, and we, we see single digits of cases or, or if it's even non-existent for a period of time, we know this is no longer an epidemic situation or a pandemic situation. Um, the, the, the thing that concerns me is that we will see some, some surges and, and retractions and new surges so it won't be something we can declare over at an instant because we will see the current spike, which is quite alarming right now, just to be clear. You mentioned we're seeing cases top 100 per day. Uh, several of the past days, we've had uh, cases over 100. Um, that's, that's quite alarming. And to put that into context, um, we, saw that, we saw that at the beginning of the catastrophic uh, late fall and winter spike. We were, we were about uh, 100 cases a day at the very beginning of that spike. We ended up eventually cresting 400 and even coming close to 500 cases a day at, at some points over that, it, just in our county alone. Um, but to put that also in perspective, in the, the, the first 
part of the pandemic wave as it reached through central New York, we were actually making about 30 to 50 cases a day. So we're already doubling the, the rate of, 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 of cases we're observing emerge in the community as we did when we shut down the first time. So it's gonna, it, it, it'll be, uh, we'll know it's over when we've actually had, I'd say a good uh, six months to a year where we've had a minimal caseload with no new surges. And that's really only going to come once we've actually adequately built up a wall of vaccination and, and community uh, protection. Until then, we do know how to operate effectively. We know masks work. We know we have some of the best vaccines ever invented in, in terms of their, their efficacy in preventing people from being hospitalized or dying. And um, we know when we, we know how to be careful. We've all learned these things in a year and a half and we keep, can keep doing them. And um, I think it's just a matter of people understanding the gravity of the current situation, understanding that we may see other waves and uh, to do things to protect ourselves because we have those within our grasp now. When it first hit, hit us, we didn't necessarily know those things. We do now. This is important information. Thank you so much to Dr. Talisa Stewart, a doctor of public health and an associate professor in Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, and to Dr. Christopher Morley, professor and chair of the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. School is about to resume. How will unvaccinated children be protected? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. As we prepare for the start of the school year, the Central New York community is seeing increases in the number of people testing positive for COVID-19 with the more contagious Delta variant. Here with me to talk about how to keep our children safe is Dr. Yana Shaw. She's a professor of pediatrics at Upstate who specializes in infectious disease and public health. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Shaw. Thank you for having me, Amber. Do we have a feel yet for how dangerous the Delta variant is for children? Yes, uh, we are learning a lot about Delta as it has been surging through our community and through the United States. Um, we know the virus is much more uh, contagious compared to uh, those original variants. And we know that a lot more children are getting infected. In fact, uh, we are seeing three times more of new child COVID cases this time of the year compared to the same period last year. Uh, we have also seen a steady increase of the, of the virus, um, even in our community since the beginning of July. Um, so as there's more virus circulating in the population, we are clearly seeing also more children getting infected. Um, and that is especially important because children uh, cannot be uh, safely vaccinated if they are under, under 12 years of age. As you and I are speaking, there is not yet a vaccine approved for use in kids under 12. How soon do you expect that to change? I'm hoping we will have some additional information and hopefully EUA uh, later this year. FDA announced that they expect the younger children to be eligible for vaccination sometimes midwinter. And Pfizer said in a statement that they anticipate the results on its clinical trials in kids um, ages 5 to 11, sometimes in September, which would then allow them to apply for emergency use authorization. As far as children um, five years and um, younger uh, are concerned, um, the, the clinical trials will likely take a lot longer and we will likely not have um, vaccines for those children by the end of this year. So uh, not, not tomorrow, hopefully soon. In the meantime, how can parents protect adolescents who are not vaccinated? Parents still have a lot of options and uh, have tools in their toolbox to protect their children um, if they cannot be vaccinated. 
uh, similar to what we advocated um, in the past and since the beginning of the pandemic, um, the same tools apply today. Um, if your child can be vaccinated, you get them vaccinated. Uh, however, if you, they can't, continue to use the same safe precautions uh, we advocated before, masking and washing, physically distancing, avoiding crowded spaces, avoid indoor spaces, especially if it means you'll be in a space with people who are not vaccinated or may come from areas of high transmission, and um, um, you know, don't um, don't attend gatherings where sick people might be uh, might be visiting. Can vaccinated parents pass this Delta variant to their own unvaccinated children? Yes, they can. Uh, Delta is very contagious, and everyone who does not have pre-existing immunity is susceptible to Delta. Unfortunately, even people who are vaccinated, they can still get infected, um, and the infection can be passed on on um, others um, around them. The difference we are seeing now between the vaccinated and unvaccinated people is that if you are vaccinated, you're much less likely uh, to develop a moderate or severe disease and um, end up in the hospital. So the measures you described about hand sanitizing and um, distancing and masking, is that what everyone needs to be doing, whether they're vaccinated or not, in order to keep kids who are unvaccinated safe? Absolutely. You know, regardless of vaccination status, we need to continue um, with those safe measures uh, because they will protect not only you, but they will protect those around you. Um, because vaccination itself doesn't render a protection against infection, it reduces the risk, but you can still get infected. It's really important that we continue to um, adhere to those uh, precautions uh, to protect those around us. I know a lot of families um, were happy that uh, kids were able to mingle with grandparents, you know, earlier in the in the spring. But right now, with the Delta variant surging in our community, should unvaccinated kids stay away from grandparents or older people that, you know, even if those people are vaccinated, should the unvaccinated children stay away from them? So if you have unvaccinated children who are well and your elderly parents um, are vaccinated, um, you should be able to safely uh, go and visit with them. If your child is sick, please don't go and visit. But as long as your children are well and the grandparents are vaccinated um, and they don't have any other underlying condition that would predispose them to vaccine failures, such as people who have immunocompromising conditions, conditions that you know, weaken their immune system, then those children should be able to safely visit with the grandparents. How should our community be protecting babies and toddlers in daycare? We should follow the same preventive measures we did last year. Daycares um, have done an excellent job uh, during the last year uh, wave of COVID uh, because they were very strict in adhering those preventive measures and um, they did so safely. You know, we had a couple of issues here and there with daycare centers and with, with outbreaks, uh, but they were somewhat limited. So making sure you don't send your, your baby to daycare when your child is sick you know, adhering to hand washing and sanitizing surfaces, uh, screening for symptoms, ensuring that the staff in daycare center is fully vaccinated. You as a parent are fully vaccinated. All those people who can be safely vaccinated should do their part to protect those little ones um, that cannot be vaccinated yet. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Yana Shaw. Now, you were part of a group of Upstate pediatricians and infectious disease experts that wrote a letter calling on school districts to require face masks, just like the CDC recommends. Why does that group feel so strongly enough to put out a public letter? You know, Amber, we as public health um, experts, and for me personally as a pediatrician, I'm a child advocate. You know, I am a mother as well, and 
um, I live to protect children and minimize risks to them. So I felt really strongly that in order for me to protect the children at schools, protect them from infection and exposure to COVID, it's really important that we speak up and make those around us aware that masking is really, really a key uh, to ensure that children can go back to school and stay at school safely. Um, you know, at schools, when children got exposed uh, to COVID, they had to quarantine for 10 uh, days last year. They lost a lot of time at school. Those kids who got infected again had to isolate for 10 days. So exposure or infection with uh, SARS-CoV-2 leads to missed school. So we want to make sure that's minimized um, this year and um, in spite of um, people, you know, uh, getting vaccinated and we certainly are in a better better position when it comes to vaccination coverage now. But still, uh, there are a lot of children, especially in the lower grades, that cannot be safely vaccinated. And um, it's really important that everybody everybody masks up. In addition, with Delta, as, as we just talked, you know, Delta can cause infection among vaccinated and those vaccinated can transmit the infection to those around them. So masking is key uh, to prevent spread of infection and school setting. Now, college campuses saw multiple outbreaks of COVID last year. What do you think it's gonna be like on college campuses this year? So I'm not sure yet. You know, a lot of colleges now require vaccination, um, which in my opinion is um, is way to go because that will ensure as high as vaccination coverage as possible. So those who will be in college, even if they get infected, they will not get very sick. Um, and also, you know, those vaccinated uh, will um, be less likely to get infected as well. So. Um, part of me hopes that the high coverage at colleges will protect those schools and students in them, uh, but it's really hard to tell um, until we know what's going to happen with Delta and possibly with additional variants um, emerging as we go through fall and winter. How important is it going to be for kids and for their parents to stay home if they're feeling sick? It's really, really important that you don't send your children back to school if they are ill. And uh, similar to you, if you are ill, don't go, um, you know, to public places um, unless absolutely necessary. And um, you avoid crowds and, um, you know, um, make sure that people don't report to work when they are sick. Um, um, it's really important because, um, as you know, it's when we are symptomatic, when we have symptoms, when we are very contagious to those around them. Um, uh, with um, COVID, um, people can be contagious even when they don't have symptoms, but their uh, ability to transmit the virus increases at times when you are when you have symptoms. So please stay home uh, when you are ill, um, not only to protect yourself um, and getting better and help yourself getting better, but also not expose those around you. Will you please go over the symptoms that are most concerning? What are the symptoms that we need to be uh, aware of and, you know, think about maybe, maybe we have COVID, maybe we need to stay in. Yeah, so the symptoms of COVID-19 are very similar to other viral infections, um, such as flu, for example, or cold. So early in the pandemic, uh, you may remember the hallmark sign of infection was uh, loss of taste or loss of smell, uh, cough, you know, shortness of breath or feeling tired. Uh, one um, important question now with Delta is whether uh, it makes you sicker than the original virus um, and uh, whether Delta uh, gives you different uh, type of symptoms. Um, in terms of um, the symptoms uh, differences, we really don't know whether different variants cause uh, different uh, symptoms in people. It doesn't appear so. Um, one survey from um, United Kingdom suggested that people who have Delta are less likely to have less of um, uh, taste or smell and are more likely to show cough and runny nose and those sort of cold symptoms. Uh, but these are sort of just isolated studies um, that um, do not provide any, any definite information for us. 
So just to summarize, um, um, if you have cold symptoms, runny nose, cough, congestion, feeling tired, you have fever, headache, and sometimes even GI symptoms such as belly ache, nausea, diarrhea, those all can be signs of COVID-19. And you should call your provider and seek advice. So if a child wakes up with sniffles, they don't have a fever or anything else, but they've got sniffles, is it safe to send them to school? So that's a tough one, right? Because it's really difficult to say whether this is just um, nothing or could this be COVID. It's quite possible that uh, children with sniffles may have to get tested, um, especially if they are unvaccinated. Um, uh, but I would recommend that um, parents call their childhood provider uh, and discuss it with them because the provider knows the child best. Um, there are also children who have allergies and sniffles can be a symptom of allergies. So it's probably best that the parent seeks um, the child's healthcare provider advice how to proceed further and whether testing and staying home is necessary. Now, once a vaccine is available for kids 12 and younger, um, can you address any concerns about the side effects? Are they likely to be similar to the side effects seen in adults who got vaccinated? So the answer is, um, Amber, that I don't know, and we don't know yet either. The trials are ongoing. The trials are carefully designed to ensure that we capture common uh, side effects following vaccination. It is likely that they will be very, very similar. And what the trials do for the younger children is that they actually look at different doses of the vaccines to ensure that we pick a dose um, that has least side effects yet provides most protection. So I think we'll just have to wait and see uh, for those trials to be completed and for the manufacturers to publish peer-reviewed data so we can see for ourselves how the side effects differ or are similar uh, to those that we've seen in adults. And do we know yet, will the vaccines that are going to be coming out for children, will they go down to infants or what age would be the youngest, do you think? I believe the youngest would be six months of age. Well, this has been very interesting and informative. Thank you so much to Dr. Yana Shaw. She's a professor of pediatrics at Upstate who specializes in infectious disease and public health. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Stay tuned to Upstate's HealthLink on Air for information on a study about complications in type 2 diabetes. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A national clinical study that included patients and investigators from Upstate's Jocelyn Diabetes Center found that people with type 2 diabetes diagnosed as youths have a higher risk of developing complications at early ages and have a greater chance of developing multiple complications within 15 years after diagnosis. With me to help understand the results of this study is the principal investigator for the Jocelyn site, Dr. Ruth Weinstock. She's a Distinguished Service Professor of Medicine and the Division Chief of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Weinstock. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I understand the findings from this study were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. What, what were the findings? Um, so this is really a landmark study. It was the first study of type 2 diabetes in individuals diagnosed as, as youth, adolescents, ages 10 to 17. Before this study, most people assumed that type 2 diabetes, no matter what age you developed it, uh, could be treated similarly and would have similar complications. Uh, unfortunately, that is not what we found. So in this study, we, meaning several sites across the country, um, but we were included in this um, and I was on the steering committee, we enrolled uh, almost 700 youth, that's between the ages of 10 and 17, who had recent onset type 2 diabetes. Now, the only medications at that time that were 
FDA approved for youth, because many of the medications that we use in adults are not approved for the pediatric population, was metformin and insulin. Um, and we wanted to see how well some of the adult medications worked in youth um, and also understand better the natural history of type 2 diabetes in youth. It was a very ethnically diverse population. Um, and the, these individuals were enrolled between 2004 and 2009. So uh, we have been following them for quite a while, some for up to 15 years. And what types of complications did you track? So we, we tracked all of the common complications that occur in adults. We tracked the development of hypertension, high blood pressure, abnormalities in lipids, which are cholesterol and triglyceride levels, the fats in the blood, uh, kidney involvement uh, from the diabetes, eye problems with their eyes from the diabetes, nerve problems, and also heart problems and stroke. So all the major complications that occur in adults. So is this showing you more that uh, diabetes type 2 is a different disease in children? So, yes, yeah, so unfortunately, it it does behave differently when it is diagnosed at this young age and and it, it it's really shocking and of great concern. Um, these young people have developed complications earlier and much more quickly. So they're now in their twenties, and the rates of complications are astounding. sixty eight percent have developed hypertension as of twenty twenty. 52% um, over half had problems, uh, abnormalities in their lipid levels, the, the fats in their blood. 55% over half have kidney involvement already. Um, actually, one of our participants is on dialysis. He's in his 20s. Um, nerve problems have been found in at least a third. And the eye involvement, uh, which can lead to blindness uh, if left untreated, the eye involvement is found in over half as well. Uh, so, it, and, and we had six deaths, unfortunately, one of a heart attack. Again, these are young people, one of kidney failure, uh, drug overdose, and three of uh, sepsis. So people with diabetes are also more likely to get um, infections and have more difficulty fighting infections. In fact, you may know that with COVID, um, diabetes is a huge risk factor for a poor outcome with COVID. People with diabetes are more likely to be admitted to the hospital if they get infected with COVID, they're more likely to need to be intubated and unfortunately more likely to die. So we really also encourage all our patients with diabetes to, to get vaccinated. But so it's all very um, sobering. Well, with this study looking at youth onset type 2 diabetes being more difficult to control than if it's diagnosed in adulthood, what are the theories for why that is? I, I I gather this study didn't really get into that, but do you have some ideas? So we are trying to figure that out. And of course, much more research will be needed. Um, there are a number of, of possibilities and possible contributing factors. It will probably be a combination of many of these because type two diabetes isn't really one disease and probably it's, it's multiple types of, of, of diabetes that we just don't know enough yet to be able to distinguish. Uh, there is a genetic substudy that is looking at whether there are genetic differences in those who develop some of these complications versus those who don't. Um, there are hormone surges during adolescence, during puberty, that uh, can make the diabetes more difficult to control and whether those hormonal changes that occur during adolescence or contributing factor is still um, a definite possibility. Uh, there are other, there are psychosocial factors as well. So uh, how, um, so these individuals are adolescents and in terms of taking medication and um, following healthy lifestyle and um, not engaging in risky behavior, you know, that can be challenging sometimes during the adolescent years. The other things that we found is as these young people became young adults, you know, again, they started as youth, but now they're adults, young adults. Um, many don't have health insurance, particularly in states that didn't have expanded Medicaid. And they are much more likely not to have seen anyone for their diabetes in the past year to have much worse uh, blood sugar control and not to be taking their medications. So I think it's multifactorial. 
the other challenges are that we have some wonderful new medications being used in adults. They have not yet been FDA approved in children. Um, and we are participating actually in an additional clinical trial right now that is looking at uh, one of those class of medications in, in children, in youth, uh, to see if that uh, can help them better control their diabetes. So number of the medications used in adults need to be tested in, in youth, and we are trying to, we are participating in other studies that are looking at that, but uh, it's a very complicated problem. And obviously we would love to be able to prevent type two diabetes. That, that's the most important thing, but we definitely need better treatments. Some of the, the treatments that were used in this trial uh, were, did not, so we, one of the things we found out is that in youth, they seem to lose the ability to secrete insulin, the hormone that you need to keep your blood sugars normal at a much faster rate than we see in adults who develop type two diabetes. And, and that we don't really know how to stop. And that, that has to be an area of research. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Ruth Weinstock. She leads the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Upstate, and she's the 2021 President for Medicine and Science at the American Diabetes Association. Well, getting back to the treatments, I know the study kind of compared three treatment areas, and it mentions intensive lifestyle intervention. What, what was that? So that was a very intensive lifestyle intervention that was led actually by, at our site, by two of our psychologists, um, Dr. Ron Slesky and Dr. Paula Treif. And uh, it was based on behavioral science and it, it helped uh, teach individuals and their families about healthy eating, um, uh, physical activity. We offered free memberships to YMCA in, in, the, in collaboration with the Ys in our area. Uh, 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 taught them about a healthy lifestyle, helped read food labels, helped with grocery shopping, just um, helped dealing with stress and other issues that can affect one's lifestyle. And they met with them initially every week um, to really try to help them um, uh, improve their uh, nutritional status and physical activity. Uh, all of the individuals enrolled in this study, all the youth were obese. Uh, which is uh, commonly seen with type 2 diabetes. And many, many, it was very common for them to have family members and parents who also had diabetes. So this was a family-oriented um, lifestyle intervention. And despite the intensity of, of this intervention, um, we didn't see any significant differences between the individuals enrolled in that arm versus those who received with traditional education. So everybody received, of course, um, uh, advice and instruction and encouragement in terms of uh, uh, their eating, their diet, nutritional status, and, and physical activity. But one arm had this very intensive, we called it a, a pal, who actually you know, went to, sometimes even to the individual's homes to help them. And unfortunately, uh, that group um, did not do any better than the others. So I think it just shows how difficult this is. Well, you already talked about some of the complications that were tracked, uh, but I wonder, did you see anything different in terms of complications in the, in the younger adults than you do in older people with type 2 diabetes? So the types of complications are the same, but adults, that is individuals who are diagnosed with diabetes as adults, you know, middle-aged, older adults, they don't seem to develop the complications as quickly as, um, as the children. So what we see in adults is that many do unfortunately develop complications, but it takes many more years. It's much more gradual. And some of the medications appear to work better. So that's, um, so for example, metformin, which is used in adults and works very well in many adults. Um, all of the children in this trial, all the youth were treated with metformin. That was a, a baseline that everybody uh, received. And uh, very quickly, half of them were not, it had poor glycemic control on that, which we would not expect from the adult literature. 
Were you able to look at some of these participants and predict who would develop specific complications? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great, great question. Um, so those who developed the complications, not surprisingly, had the worst blood sugar control. So okay. we have a blood test called hemoglobin A1C, and those with the highest A1Cs um, were at highest risk of developing the complications. The same thing with hypertension, those with hypertension, and that's been shown in the adult literature as well. So for example, both high blood sugars and high blood pressure are known to accelerate the development of kidney complications from diabetes, as an example. So those with the higher um, hemoglobin A1Cs, the higher blood pressure, um, the worst lipid profile, those, again, the fats, the cholesterol in the blood, um, and also those who of minority race and ethnicity were at the highest risk, unfortunately, of developing these complications. So it's really imperative to, to keep blood sugar under control and keep blood pressure normal. Yes, and, and in this trial, we focused on both um, not only blood sugar control, but also blood pressure control and the control of the lipids. So uh, all, all of those were addressed in this trial, but even so, um, the results, as I said, were um, very unfortunate. Well, have you altered the way you care for young people who are newly diagnosed based on these findings? So I think we need to be more aggressive in individuals who are newly diagnosed. Um, we are using some uh, medications that were not available when this study started in 2004 that are used in adults. Um, and again, we're trying to enroll some of these individuals in clinical trials so that we can uh, see if some of these adult medications that are not yet approved for children can help them um, and get FDA approval, assuming that the trials show that they're efficacious in this age group as they are in adults. But one cannot assume that the way diabetes is in adults is the same as in children. But I'd like to broaden that and say that everybody's diabetes is different that we really need to individualize care. Because even in adults, there are some adults that respond to certain medications and not others. And someone who looks just like them might respond to a different medication. Uh, so type two diabetes is very heterogeneous. We need a lot more research to better understand really the various types of diabetes that we now include under the umbrella of the title of type two diabetes and better target treatments. And that is a big area of research now that I think is extremely important. It's called precision medicine, try, trying to better understand what the actual um, physiological or molecular or genetic problem is and target treatment for that individual. And it's going to be different across the lifespan and also in different individuals and different families. What do you say to families that have a youth who is newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes about what is important for them to do or not do with someone who's newly diagnosed? Well, for anybody who's newly diagnosed with diabetes, regardless of the type of diabetes, we try to provide support, um, psychosocial support, uh, support in terms of uh, education, diabetes education. The more people understand the condition, the better they can help themselves, the whole family. So bringing the whole family in, we have wonderful dietitians and nurse educators. We have a whole team of individuals, social workers and others who can help people um, better understand uh, what they need to do in terms of lifestyle to try and stay healthy. And also we try to prescribe the best medication based on our current knowledge for them, teach them how to monitor the blood sugar levels. If whatever we start with isn't working, we switch to something else, you know, just and 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 hope. I mean, I think there's a lot of hope because there's a lot of wonderful research going on right now. Uh, and, and every year we have uh, more medications and, and more information to help people. So uh, hopefully and also uh, new approaches to reduce complications. So there is some new some drugs that have come out in the last few years that reduce uh, damage to kidneys, for example, from diabetes. So that I think there is a lot of hope and we just need to continue to work together and, um, and try to find the best possible treatments for each person. 
Thank you to Dr. Ruth Weinstock. She's a distinguished service professor of medicine and the division chief of endocrinology, diabetes and metabolism at Upstate, and also the 2021 president for medicine and science at the American Diabetes Association. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. To be on call for a physician means that one may not be physically present in the hospital, but one must be available by phone for the residents or nurses who are on duty to call. Tabor Flickinger practices as a general internist. Her work has appeared in Pulse magazine and Yale Journal for Humanities and Medicine. Her short poem, On Call, shows us the balancing act the physician maintains as he or she is at home with family while simultaneously thinking about the patients in the hospital. On Call, a hospice nurse desired an opiate elixir for a body past swallowing, a soul rattling its way out. I sent it as an offering to smooth his path. After five more calls for other people's problems, hospice again, He has passed on, now at peace. We speak in tones hushed, not only for his gravity, but to preserve unrippled my child's dream. The vibration of others' peril infiltrates my home and brings the whole to sharp relief. I whisper benediction into the dark. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, all about COVID vaccine boosters. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.